Preaching the word this morning is from Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 40 through chapter 16, verse 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. And Jesus bought, I'm sorry, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us that the entran- for the, from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, so ends the reading of the word, and so ends our journey through Mark's gospel. I think it's been about 18 months we've been working through Mark's gospel together. And we've come to the end of our study, and I want to take the same approach this Sunday that I took last week. If you remember last week, we walked with Jesus, the man of sorrows, along the way of sorrow. We, we traveled with him from the praetorium where Pilate had pronounced the verdict uh, that he should be crucified, all the way to Golgotha and to the cross and to his death on the cross. And then we looked at some implications of that for our life. That was last week. I want to take the same approach this week. This week, I want to just kind of take us from the cross where Jesus was hanging down through the dialogue between the women and the angel. Just kind of explain what's happening there before we look at four implications for the Christian life from this text as we wrap things up. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful for preserving uh, this record of the death and the resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, who is active among us and within those who are your own, that you would teach us, that you would seal these truths to our hearts, that 
oh God, we might seek to live for your glory all the days that you give us on this earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's unpack 1540 through 16 verse 5. So in 1540, it tells us there are women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. And then when they were in Galilee, they were following him and ministering to him. So Mark is establishing for us, there were a group of people, it wasn't just the 12 who were following Jesus all throughout his ministry. There are various places throughout the Gospels where we read of the 12, we read of those who are uh, disciples, kind of a broader group of people. At one point he sent out 72 disciples to, to minister. And then we read of the crowds, you know, a larger group of people that were following him. And Mark is reminding us here that among the disciples, those who were following Jesus were these group of women and many others as well. When you get to verse 42, it tells us when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So that gives us a time frame. Remember, uh, the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus on a cross before sundown the day before the Sabbath because Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and wasn't completed until sundown on Saturday. And so that's why very early in the morning on Friday, the Sanhedrin took Jesus to Pilate and and Pilate had Jesus on a cross by 9 a.m. And by 3 p.m., Jesus had died. And so here it is, there's just a little bit of time left until sundown in order to do what they hoped they would be able to do, which was bring Jesus down from the cross, anoint him properly for burial, and then have him entombed or buried. So that's what's happening in verse 42. So then you get to verse 43, and we read of Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. That means that Joseph was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, remember, was the group of Jewish religious leaders who had in a, in a you know, a trial that was a travesty of justice, condemned Jesus of deserving of death, and then handed him over to Pilate with the hopes that he would be crucified. Joseph was part of that council. However, Luke tells us that Joseph had not voted in favor of handing Jesus over as deserving of death. Matthew tells us that Joseph was actually a disciple, a follower of Jesus, And Mark, of course, tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. So second half of verse 43, it says that Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, why would he need courage in order to go to Pilate? Well, first of all, bodies were normally left on the cross. They were normally left there to rot, they were normally left there to be eaten by dogs and birds of prey. Jewish practice, Jewish custom, however, was to have a body buried within 24 hours. However, Pilate was under no obligation to fulfill that request of Joseph, this particular Jewish man, or any particular Jewish person. He could have just said no. So Joseph has to go to Pilate to get permission, but remember, Joseph was part of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin, and Pilate had just gotten played by the Sanhedrin. The text told us that Pilate knew, earlier in chapter 14, Pilate knew 
that it was just because the Sanhedrin was envious of Jesus that they wanted him crucified. Pilate knew that Jesus was guilty of nothing. His plan, because, you know, he was on his annual amnesty charm offensive, was to have Jesus handed over to the crowd. So when the crowd came, as they did every year at the time of Passover, asking for a prisoner to be relieved, Pilate thought, surely they're going to ask me for Jesus. And when they do, I can hand over Jesus, and that'll really stick it to the Sanhedrin. It didn't play out that way. The Sanhedrin got their way with Pilate. And now a member of the Sanhedrin is coming to Pilate and saying, hey, man, can you do me a favor? Took courage for Joseph to go to Pilate, not, not to mention the fact that Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin and he's going to ask for Jesus's body. And then you get to verses 44 and 45 and there's a, a great deal of, actually we can start back at 40, yeah, let's do 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. There's a lot of detail there. Mark wants to make sure that his readers understand that Jesus, in fact, had died. And, and not just in this area, but in the account that I just read, there's a lot of detail. People are named. The place that they are from is referenced. And that's not just in the passage we read this morning, but in all of Mark's Gospels. In fact, in all of the Gospels. There's a lot of detail. Now, why does that matter? It matters for this reason. One of the reasons that, that people give for saying Christianity isn't true is that they say the Gospels are myths. They're made up. They're just stories. That's a problem, however. It's a problem for them. It's not a problem for us. The problem is pointed out really well by C.S. Lewis a number of years ago. C.S. Lewis, you remember, was a professor of literature at the University of Cambridge. He said that there's really two options when it comes to the gospel accounts if you're going to make the accusation that they are just myths. Lewis says this, either this is historical reporting or some unknown ancient writer without predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic fiction 2,000 years ahead of when it happened. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. In other words, myths weren't written this way back then. This feels like a novel, right? This is a real page turner. For us today, novels didn't exist back then. Either somebody, you know, 2,000 years before novels were invented, wrote a novel, or this is historical reporting. This is an account of what really happened. All right, so coming back to the text, looking at verse 46, it says, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Now, Jews had two options really when it came to burial of the dead. It was either, you know, bury them in a grave or if they were wealthier, they could put them in a tomb that had been cut into a rock face. Joseph was a wealthier member of the Sanhedrin. This is most likely his family tomb they had had it cut into the rock. Now, when you went into a tomb like this that was cut into a rock, you would find either 
a, a hole that had been cut into the rock so that a body could be slid on that shelf, as it were, back into the rock. Or you had a ledge kind of chiseled out. So you kind of had it along the side of the rock inside the, you know, the, in the tomb, inside the cave, with a little bit of an arch over it. That's how bodies were laid out inside these caves. Caves have been found. Tombs have been found dating back to the time of Jesus. In this very location, archaeologists believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is most likely on the spot where Joseph would have had Jesus laid in his tomb. And then jump down to verse 47 and looking through verse 5 of chapter 16. What you have here are these women who witness where the body was laid. So they followed Joseph when Jesus was put in the tomb, they saw that. They were witnesses to it. Then they went back because Passover was upon them. And then on Saturday evening, they were able to go out. Shops were open. They were able to buy the spices that they needed. Jewish people did not um, embalm their dead bodies. They anointed them with spices in order to help alleviate the, the odor of a decaying body. And so they bought their spices on Saturday evening after Sabbath had ended, and, and then they made their way first thing Sunday morning to, to the tomb. And they witnessed that the stone was rolled away. They, they witnessed that there was an angel who was there who gave them a message and told them, I want you guys to go bear witness to the disciples and tell them what you have seen. Now, why is it important that the women were the first witnesses to all this. And that addresses another common objection to Christianity. And that's this. Okay, we'll grant you that the Gospels aren't myths. We'll grant you that they're historical reporting, but they're fake news. The disciples made it up. Here's the problem with that. In that day and age, a woman's testimony was not considered admissible in a court of law. If you wanted to make something up with the hope that people will believe what you've written, you would not have women be the witnesses to the event. It would be totally counterproductive to what you're trying to do. So yet again, right here in the passage, we have evidence that this is not a made-up story because no one would write it this way. They witness that the stone is rolled away. They witness that the tomb is empty. They hear the angel say, he's not here, he is risen. What are we meant to take away then as we wrap things up from our study of Mark's gospel? I think there's four things that we need to take to heart when it comes to living the Christian life as we consider what we've learned throughout Mark's gospel. And those four things are this. That the Christian life is marked by suffering. It's marked by stumbling. It's marked by recommissioning. And finally, it's marked by hope. The Christian life is marked by suffering, stumbling, recommissioning, and hope. So first, the Christian life is marked by suffering. Throughout verses 42 through 47, the cross loomed large in the background. Jesus' body was still on the cross. It's there. As we saw all this happening between the women and, and Joseph realizing that he needed to go to Pilate in order to ask for the body, the cross looms large in the background. Jesus is still hanging there. The cross looms large all throughout the second half of Mark's gospel. 
It's implicit from the very first verse of Mark's gospel when Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Gospel, that word, that good news, the cross is at the center of what makes the good news good news. But the cross is not mentioned anywhere in Mark's gospel until you get to chapter 8, verse 34, when Jesus says to the crowd that's following him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, following Jesus will involve suffering. Jesus said that to the crowd right after he had said to his disciples something about his own suffering. Jesus had said in uh, chapter 8, the pivotal moment in Mark's gospel, pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. Mark says to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Christian life will be a way of suffering. Jesus is saying, my journey, my path is one of suffering and they are literally on their way to Jerusalem. They've left Galilee. Galilee, the place where those disciples were first called. The place where they were first taught by Jesus. The place where they were first commissioned and sent out for ministry by Jesus. They are leaving there and they are on their way to Jerusalem, the place of suffering. Even as Christians today go to the ends of the world with the gospel They are, in a sense, on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to the place of suffering. The cross which looms large in the background in verses 42 and following is a reminder to us of what it means to follow Jesus, that the Christian life is marked by suffering. Suffering in the form of marginalization, of ostracization, of persecution, Just as Mark's original readers, remember, Mark was writing to the church in Rome under Nero. They were just beginning to experience sporadic persecution, some of it incredibly severe. Just as was the case for Mark's original readers under Nero, just as the case for Christians throughout history, just as it is for Christians in Afghanistan right now, so too for us, not to the same degree, by God's grace. But the Apostle Paul made it clear in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you go public with your faith, you will, to some degree, be marginalized, misrepresented, slandered. Jesus told us to expect this in the Beatitudes. Relatively speaking, what we face is a small cross to bear, but it is a cross nonetheless, and it is the normal Christian life. The Christian life is marked by suffering. Second, the Christian life is marked by stumbling. Now, we're going to get at here why it is that we should stop with verse 8 and not go on and look at verses 9 through 20 of Mark's gospel. Why does it end the way it does? I want you to notice something. First of all, remember the fact 
that all the disciples had stumbled and fall. They had fallen away from Jesus. Jesus had told them back in Mark 14, 26 through 31, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. They would all fall away on account of him. And that is exactly what happened. But then in our passage, back in verses 40 and 40, uh, yeah, verse 40, there were women looking on from a distance. So the the women disciples, they, they weren't absent, but they, they weren't fully present either, at least not initially. They were looking on from a distance. Everyone, it seems, has fallen away. Everyone, it seems, has stumbled, has failed Jesus in some way. By the time you get to verse 8, you know, yes, of course, they see an angel and so they are terrified. That's normal. Right? You you see the supernatural, it's going to scare you. However, they fled, verse 8 tells us. And they said nothing to anyone. They had been commissioned to go and tell, and they initially, here in Mark, didn't. That helps us make sense of why Mark's gospel ends the way it does so abruptly in verse 8. Now, if you have a Bible, you'll notice that there's a little note between verse 8 and verse 9, and then verse 9 and following is bracketed. The note you have says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. I love the fact that this is kept in our Bible, because the fact of the matter is there are manuscripts that do contain verses 9 through 20. And there has been a history within some strands of the church of of accepting verses 9 through 20. But the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts and the broadest swath of the church have said, no, we believe that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8 of chapter 16. So your options are either verse 9 through 20 is part of what Mark wrote, or verses 9 through 20 were added by a later copyist because they couldn't make sense of, you know, why would Mark end with verse 8? Or the third option, Mark ended with verse 8. So why? Why would that be the case? And I think the reason has to do with the fact that in Mark's gospel, everyone falls away. Everyone stumbles. The disciples, the 12 stumble, the other disciples, men and women stumble, and these key witnesses at the end of Mark's gospel stumble. They fall away. Mark leaves the rest of the story to the others that are telling the story. Mark ends here with verse 8 in order to leave us as the reader asking the question, in the face of the persecution, the suffering that we face, will we fall away will we likewise stumble mark leaves the rest of the story to others who are also also telling the story so that we can be confronted with that question how will we respond stumbling failing falling away that characterizes the normal christian life as well I love the fact that we do not have here super disciples, heroes, men and women who never falter in their following of Jesus. Instead, what we have are followers of Jesus who are just like us. The Christian life is marked by suffering. 
The Christian life is also marked by stumbling, but praise God, third, the Christian life is marked by recommissioning. Recommissioning. Back in Mark 14, after Jesus had told his disciples that they would all fall away, he said to them in the very same breath, you're all going to fall away, and when I'm risen, I'll go ahead of you into Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, you have the angel reminding the women and telling them to tell the disciples that very same thing. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I love that the angel said, don't forget to tell Peter. Because you remember the story. When Jesus said the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter and you're all going to fall away on account of me, all the disciples protested, but Jesus, you know, Peter, you know, doth protest too loudly. I will never fail you, Jesus. You are so wrong, Messiah. You just said he was the Messiah. You are so wrong. And Jesus, of course, said, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter did. Peter was devastated. Jesus knew this was going to happen. And so the messenger of God brings a message from the Son of God. Don't forget to tell Peter. I need him too. I want him too. John's gospel goes into great detail concerning Peter's recommissioning. The point for us this morning is just to know that no matter how much you have stumbled, no matter how severely you have fallen away, even if your entire life has been marked more by failure than by followership, if you will confess your sin and receive the forgiveness and acceptance that is found in Jesus Christ, you will find forgiveness, you will find the love of God, and you will find that he has a purpose for you for the advancement of his gospel. You say, how could that possibly be? I've wasted so much time, so much of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm days away from death. That's how sick I am. And you're telling me that God has a purpose for me. Yes, he does. In those days that remain, be asking, God, what's your purpose for me? How is my story, which has so little time left here on earth, to be redeemed for your glory? How is it that in these moments that I have left, I can make your invisible kingdom visible to those around me? That is true for the person who is on their deathbed, and guess what? None of us are far away. The Christian life is marked by suffering. It's marked by stumbling. It is marked by recommissioning. Think about this. Just think about the geography all right? They left Galilee, the place where they were first commissioned. They went to Jerusalem, the place of suffering, and for them, the place of stumbling and failure. They all deserted Jesus. And Jesus said, I want you to meet me in Galilee. We're going back to the place of commissioning. We're going back to the place where I called you. We're going back to the place where I taught you. We're going back to the place where I first commissioned you and sent you out. In the same way that the Christian life is marked by suffering, we're all in some way carrying our cross on the way to Jerusalem. We are all in some way always experiencing what it is to stumble. And we are all by God's grace being called back to the place of recommissioning. 
Finally, the Christian life is marked by hope. Hope. Hope because Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. Hope. Because this is not the end. No matter how, you know, inspired or not inspired, you may be as a result of this sermon, no matter how much you are thankful for the word of God, if all we have in this life, Paul tells us, if Christ is not risen, then we who are still putting our trust in him are of most people, of all people, to be most greatly pitied. Because there's no point, there's no hope. But Christ is risen, and so the Christian life is marked by hope. Now, please remember the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope. Worldly hope involves certainty of time, uncertainty with respect to outcome. I have a job interview at 9 a.m. I do not have a job interview at 9 a.m. tomorrow. I have a job interview at 9 a.m. tomorrow. I hope it goes well. Certainty of time, uncertainty of outcome. Biblical hope. Certainty of outcome, uncertainty with respect to time. Christ is risen because Christ is risen. Everything that he said is true. Because Christ is risen and raised for our justification, all who have put their trust in him will stand, presently do stand justified before God. And when Jesus Christ returns to judge, though our record be filled with wrongs, it is all covered by the blood of Jesus. Certainty of outcome. Christ is risen. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is risen as the first fruits of the resurrection. You remember what first fruits means. First fruits were that first part of the harvest to let the farmer know is this going to be a good harvest, is this going to be a bad harvest. Jesus Christ resurrected as the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. Your resurrection from the grave. Certainty of outcome, uncertainty of time. We just don't know when. Man knows not his time, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us. Jesus says, you know neither the day of hour, day or hour when I will return. Uncertainty of time, that's the Christian life. We walk by faith, but certainty of outcome. Praise be to God. And so the Christian life is marked by suffering. It's marked by stumbling. It is marked by God's grace by recommissioning. It's marked by hope. It's marked by hope. This is the message of Mark's gospel. Because this is the message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us take these things to heart. Anything I've said, Lord, that has been in alignment with your word and is in alignment with your purposes for your people this morning, Lord, let that sink deep into our hearts, into our thinking, into our believing, into our living. Lord, especially I pray, would you help us to be people who are so grounded in the hope of of the resurrection, our resurrection, the renewal of all things because our Savior, Jesus Christ, is risen. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.